Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the book of Acts, where we are going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. That's Acts chapter 5, 17 through 26. You can find that passage either on page 1074 in your pew Bibles or beginning there on the bottom of page 26 in your Acts journals. Last week in looking at verses 12 through 16, we saw God directly answering the prayer of the church that Luke had recorded for us at the end of chapter 4. You remember the apostles had asked for boldness in the face of increasing opposition to their mission. They prayed beginning in verse 29 of chapter 4. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we saw that answer manifesting itself as we are told in chapter 5 that indeed, through the, hands of the, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were being done among the people. So much so, in fact, that we are told droves of people were flocking into Jerusalem in order to gain access to the apostles and to be healed of their many diseases and the difficulties that were such a part of their life. And as a result of coming to them for physical healing, again, in answer to the selfless prayer of the church, the door was beginning to open for many of these broken people to both hear and through the power of the Spirit embrace the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of this is taking place in the temple yard. In Solomon's portico, or what we refer to as Solomon's porch. The very place where Peter and John had recently been arrested for healing but one man and using that opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of it pointed to what might be called a healthy church here at the very outset of their apostolic ministry. And we looked very specifically at just a few of the vital signs of health for this early church of Jesus Christ as they sought to carry out their mission to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. As I said, we could then easily apply those same health checks to ourselves and do some spiritual triage, if you will, of our own to see where we are as Christ's followers today. And the first thing we looked at was that one of the real indicators of health that was so evident in this early church was that they were a praying church. I've mentioned it already this morning. They were crying out to God individually and collectively continually. And their prayers are not at all the stuff of self-absorption, that we see so often throughout what calls itself the evangelical church in our own day. They're not on their own personal spiritual odysseys, seeking personal enlightenment apart from their fellow servants in the kingdom. They are together, crying out to Almighty God first and foremost 
for relief for their fellow image bearers. They are together seeking the mercy of God for their neighbors that they would receive physical relief as a means of opening them up for spiritual relief. A spiritual relief that they so desperately needed. And we saw that it was far more than just asking, wasn't it? They are trusting that God will most certainly do it. They know that God will do it. Because He is a merciful God. And look what was happening. God was drawing all of these people to the church of Jesus Christ. The sick, the broken, the desperate. All of them were pushing in, trying to get even under even the shadow of Peter in the hopes that they would find relief for their suffering. And by the grace of God, relief was being dispersed. They were a praying church, a praying kingdom. And doing so in faith also made them an expectant church. God was graciously delivering the souls of the brokenhearted all around them into the kingdom. The second health vital sign that was in evidence in Acts chapter 5 is that they are a compassionate church. They are moved by the suffering that surrounds them. They were wanting desperately to bring relief. You can see it in that they are much more concerned for the care of these people all around them than they are for even their own safety. Think about it. They are surrounded by disease and sickness and desperation. And it's not just a gimmick to gather a crowd. This is not a, a bait and switch operation to offer healing just to get the people into one place so that they can then instead just preach the gospel to them. No, they are healing the sick through the power of God. They're doing many signs and wonders. They're healing diseases. They are casting out demons. They're undoubtedly making the lame to walk and the blind to see. They're probably healing diseases like leprosy at great risk to themselves. They're most certainly standing in great danger of upsetting the rulers of the temple who had already ordered them to stop after the commotion caused by the healing of but one man. But they trust God. And they must get the people to Jesus. Because they love them. They are compassionate because they themselves have received the compassion of their king. King Jesus. And so they delight in getting these people to Jesus. And in both things, they're praying and they're being compassionate, we are forced to look at our own hearts. Are we this way? This way that is truly the fruit of the gospel. Why or why not? They prayed. They acted in compassionate kindness to their fellow image bearers, suffering all around them. They were unafraid of the consequences because they truly trusted God. And by the grace of God, we are told that the church grew and grew and grew. 
Luke tells us that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Beloved, it really is such an unlikely church growth model, isn't it? This would never be the plan to make it through a committee focused on the growth of the church today. I think we would probably have a tendency to think that we know what good church members look like. And it's not like this. We want people to have their acts together. We want people to be financially independent. We want them to have good health. We want the pretty people. The people that make us look good to the outside so we can get more of them on the inside. But look at what God did. This isn't the pretty people. He drove the sick and the desperate and the broken into the presence of the apostles to join them to the ranks of his church. Because it is the sick and the desperate and the broken who look outside of themselves for an answer to what it is that truly ails them. This kingdom, the kingdom of God, is built through the power of the gospel. Broken sinners come running and find life. Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. And beloved, the word of God tells us his kingdom will most certainly stand. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And though we see counterfeit kingdoms rise up again and again and again and try to throw down the kingdom of God, one by one they prove to be false kingdoms. And they will never stand up to our king. We see just such an example this morning as once again the leaders of the temple stir themselves up to put an end to these apostles and their Jesus. So if you've not already done so, turn with me to Acts chapter 5 and follow along now as I read verses 17 through 26. Hear now the holy, inerrant, and infallible word of our Lord. Then the high priest rose up. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And when they heard that, They entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who were with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple 
and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to come before your word this morning. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life, that we might give our full attention to your word and hearing it through the power of your spirit, that we may be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage this morning, we are sort of standing at the brink of an escalation of oppression that is being waged against the church of Jesus Christ. And really what begins to become very clear here as things begin to escalate is that this clash is really a clash between two very different kingdoms. The true kingdom of God against a counterfeit kingdom that is proclaiming to be the true kingdom. So it's not at all a surprise that the enmity between these two kingdoms rises here rather rapidly. And as that temperature begins to rise in the text before us this morning, it's my hope to point out just a few traits that I think can be compared here to help sort out the true from the false. The first time Peter and John were arrested, though they had been handled a bit roughly at the time of their arrest, they were subsequently released unharmed, under a threat to cease and desist with their proclamation of Jesus or else. They were literally told, do not speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. It was a law, of course, that the apostles would not and could not obey because it directly contradicted the mission that had been handed down to them by the Lord Jesus Christ himself just prior to his ascension. However, no real harm had befallen them at the time. But things are most definitely escalating here. And we read in verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, And all those who were with them, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison or the public prison. It's a way of saying that this was done in front of the people. Remember, this is on the heels of this mass restoration and healing ministry, both physical and spiritual, that is going on through the hands of the apostles within the temple grounds. And undoubtedly, it has been a spectacle. People are coming in droves. There could be no way to miss this significant event taking place in the very heart of the city of Jerusalem. And so, of course, there's no way that these leaders of the temple are going to just ignore it. We find them here in the New King James Version being filled with indignation. The Greek, though, I think is a little bit more pointed than that. Indignation 
certainly conveys their anger and frustration over this scene that the apostles are making. That's no real surprise. Of course they're angry. They want these men to just go away quietly without too much of a fuss. But really, in the Greek, the word used here, it, the words used here are a play thesan zelon, which translated much closer to they are being filled with jealousy. Zelon is jealousy. It forces us to think about the source of their anger, not just their anger. The source that is fueling this rising aggression towards the church of Jesus Christ. And it forces us to look at something that we see in both kingdoms here that will be helpful to finding which one is true and which one may look good, but under a little bit of scrutiny becomes clear that it is a counterfeit. An imposter passing itself off as the real thing. So let's look at both kingdoms' evident zeal here. That's the first thing, zeal. I think it's obvious to even a casual reader that both kingdoms represented in this text are clearly zealous for something. And the apostles and the followers of Jesus are making it plain throughout these early chapters of Acts what is driving their zeal. First, though, we should probably answer the question, what what is zeal? Well, zeal is a great energy or enthusiasm in the pursuit of a cause or an objective. And we see that clearly here with the apostles, don't we? This is a zealous pursuit of their being witnesses to the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That is what they are clearly living for. They have given everything for it. They're not even acting in a way that shows that they are too concerned with their own safety. They must preach the gospel. They must minister to the hurting and the heartbroken and the weary. They live for others. Beloved, we need to see it here. They will gladly give up their freedom... They will gladly give up even their lives to get the people to Jesus. This is what godly zeal looks like. This is the zeal of the kingdom of God. And we know it when we see it because it is a zeal that is all about Him. You understand, there's no selfishness here at all. They're not building a church according to their own whims and fancies. This is not a testimony to their own legacies. No one here is trying to protect the sacred past simply for tradition's sake. This is not about them. They are not zealous for themselves. They are zealous for the gospel and the kingdom. Do you see it? Look, this is nothing like what we see driving these members of the Sanhedrin. They're not driven by godly zeal at all. They're being driven by zeal only for themselves and for their own power and for their own advancement. 
Luke tells us that upon seeing the manifest work of God in a very real restoration going on, amid the people through the hands of these apostles, these men did not join in praising Jehovah for clearly visiting his people. But they were filled instead with jealous rage. They were jealous. They did not appreciate that the people were becoming enamored with the apostles. They were jealous of their show of power. They were jealous about the respect being shown to these men. They were jealous of the true kingdom of God. And they wanted like nothing else to silence the name of its king. Their zeal is all about them. It is driven by self-preservation, which has no place in the kingdom of God. And beloved, this is as good of a place as any any to continue with that spiritual triage that we started last week. We need to ask ourselves this question. What are we zealous for this morning? Is it truly the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom? We have to ask ourselves, do we live to be his witnesses here? Do we long to see our brothers and sisters in Christ growing in grace and in faith to the glory of Almighty God? Or is it something else? Is it perhaps more of a personal thing for you? Is it a a traditional thing? You do it because your family has done it for generations. How do you feel about the welfare of your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? I mean it. Look around the sanctuary. Do you care? Are you zealous For the kingdom of God? Or have you built a counterfeit kingdom? It's a telling question. Are we zealous for the gospel of Jesus Christ and its effects on the brokenness all around us, even within our own hearts? Are we filled with godly zeal? The second driving force here in this text is also very telling. Godly zeal is one driving force. Another force on display here, or at least in the case of the church, is real, authentic, biblical faith. Faith that has an object. And that object is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the source of their otherworldly courage. This is how they can stand up and do the work of God amid even violent opposition without fear of repercussion. You understand, they know God and they trust God. Do you see it? This is how we define true faith in the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the the great confessions of the church. Question 21, many of you know it by heart. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge 
whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also. Forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Beloved, this is exactly what we see going on here in the early church and with these apostles. They really do know God. They speak with Him. They hear His Word. They know Him and He knows them. And they trust Him. What could they ever possibly have to fear? They belong to the Most High God. He controls all things. Who can ever stand up against him? It's folly to even consider it. Well, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Why do the nations rage? What a waste of time, right? It's his to move. So come what may, they trust him. Whether they are delivered for his name's sake, or they suffer for his name's sake, or they die for his name's sake, they are his, and he is theirs. They know him, and they trust him. They trust in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. They believe that he truly came and lived and died and rose again that they might have life. They believed that he truly ascended. They were there. They saw it happen. They believed that now he's at the right hand of the Father, sanctifying all that they do and all that they say and all that they even think. They trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They believe him. They have taken him at his word So what do they ever have to fear? Do you see it, beloved? They know Jesus, and they trust him wholeheartedly, and that drives them again and again into the arms of Jesus Christ. Faith is a force driving them to do the will of God. Joyfully regardless of their circumstances. Look at the comparison. What is driving this other group of men? Leaders in Israel who undoubtedly see themselves as the true children of Abraham, the children of Almighty God. It's not faith. It's fear. The opposite of faith. God's word from the beginning to the end is constantly telling his children to not be afraid. To not live in fear. But these men do. They care more about the perception of the people than about what their God has clearly said. If they had been listening to God, they would have been anticipating his coming in the very way that he came. But they did not. 
We see their fear rising to the surface again and again. They fear the loss of their power. They fear an uprising within the people. As this narrative continues, these leaders are told of the apostles' miraculous escape. And it says, they fear whatever's coming next. They don't even know. They fear what they do not know. And they leave nothing to God. They trust Him in nothing. They only trust in themselves and that has left them very, very afraid. Beloved, do you know or recognize this fear? Fear of the unknown. Fear of what you fear you cannot control. I'm going to admit to you that I do more often than I want to admit. The question is, what do we do about it? We run to Jesus again and again and again. We trust him even to give us more trust. Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. We look at all things knowing that our God is sovereign and good and merciful and just because he has revealed himself to be those things. We believe that His grace is sufficient and we carry on in our mission. We show the world Jesus Christ. Is this what we do? I trust you see the difference here. Only in the kingdom of God do we find faith driving the people of God towards Jesus Christ and His gospel and finding rest. And in all the counterfeit kingdoms of this world, we only see fear driving people to desperate acts of folly, never coming anywhere close to peace or rest. We need to ask, which one drives us this morning? Faith or fear? And what are we going to do about it? So we see in a comparison that true godly zeal exists only in his kingdom. The same is true of biblical faith. All other kingdoms fall far short of what we find in the kingdom of God. But there's one more thing here that I would point to you in closing this morning. And that is the different responses to God's truth that we see in both of these groups. In the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, living under her risen and reigning king, we see obedience in their response to the truth. They were miraculously delivered from their imprisonment by an angel of the Lord. And the angel tells them that they are to go once again into the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. All the words of this life. What a a loaded phrase, right? And a beautiful, wonderful phrase. That phrase should excite your heart this morning. Have you ever considered it? The gospel of Jesus Christ is all the words of this life. They are words that make dead things come to life. They are words that are the power of God to save his people. And they are here in this book from Genesis to Revelation. The wonderful words of life we sing about them. 
The Bible is all about King Jesus and his amazing grace in our salvation. All the words of life. Do you know these words? Do you love these words? Do you cherish these words? Can you answer this call? Go and speak all the words of this life. Well, the apostles do. You notice there's no arguing with the angel. No one is questioning the tactics of the angel here. No one is worried that escape, only to go immediately back into the hornet's nest of the temple, doesn't really seem to be a great idea. No, this is God's messenger. He's coming to them with God's words and they immediately obey. It says they go early in the morning. They can't wait to get there. There's no break for them. They are rooted in the truth. They have heard and trusted in Jesus Christ and they obey. This is obedience as a force driving them towards the glory of Almighty God. They know they're going to get rearrested. They probably know at this time it's going to be much more unpleasant. They don't care. You understand? God spoke and they obeyed because that's why they're here. But look at the Sadducees, these members of the Sanhedrin. Obedience never even crosses their minds. It can't. So they must do the opposite of obedience and faith. They readjust. And it's chaos. It's the difference, beloved, between knowing and guessing. Knowing leads to obedience. Guessing leads to constant readjustments. I had a professor in seminary that was a bit of a joker. He was highly theological and a really funny guy. And he did something that makes me think about this. It was in the early 2000s that I went to seminary. I think I started in 2005 and I graduated in 2008. And at that time, it was pretty common to see bumper stickers on Christians' cars about the rapture, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about? Maybe. I hope so. It was a resurgence. Popular books and movies and television programs had made the premillennial dispensational belief in a secret rapture of the church to become mainstream again. It wasn't the first time in my lifetime. It happened in the late 70s and the 80s with Hal Lindsey. And one of the popular bumper stickers in that time said, in the case of the rapture, Does anyone know? (laughs) This car will be unmanned, right? I saw them everywhere. You probably saw them. In the case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. Well, my professor was poking a bit of fun at those very stickers, and so his bumper sticker said, in the case of the rapture, the driver of this vehicle's eschatological views will drastically change. I can tell how many nerds are in here. If you don't get it, I'm sorry. It's... But I hope you see the point of the story, right? 
the truth comes out, he's going to side with the truth. However painful that might be. I personally think he was completely safe on that one. But to never know the truth is to live in a state of chaotic readjustment. Always trying to counter what can never ultimately be beaten. Because the truth is eternal. It will never relent. It will never let up. It will never go away. Because it's the truth. It's static. How do you react to the truth, beloved? Let me give you some examples to think about. Your sin is confronted. Maybe in a sermon. Maybe by a friend who cares about you. And who's worried about what they see going on in your life. Maybe even by the elders of the church. Because they're worried about the state of your soul. Maybe it's by your spouse. Because they, they, they truly love you. How do you respond? If you hear the truth and you know the truth, you respond the only way that you can. You repent and you run to the arms of Jesus to find sweet relief. But if you hate the truth, if you despise correction, if your only concern is the preservation of your own supposed reputation, then what do you do? You begin a series of readjustments that simply move you farther and farther and farther away from the truth. You end relationships. You run from your marriage. You leave the church because you hate the truth. Beloved, may it never be. God brings us to the truth again and again and again. And he is patient and long-suffering with us. Will you bow your stiff neck to the truth of God's holy word? If you will and if you do, then you get to enjoy your time living in the big sky kingdom of God. Lay down your burden. Rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy living with the saints of God in blessed unity in service to King Jesus. And if you do not, then the truth you must face is that yours might be a counterfeit kingdom. Knowing is only half the battle. What will you do? Beloved, repent and run to the open, loving arms of your king. Because praise be to God that the time of salvation is now. The doors are open. Will you enter his rest? This is life in the kingdom. And beloved, I pray that we will. Let's pray.